0: If you can please stand for the reading of the scripture. This is from Psalms 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The word of the Lord. All right, thanks be to God and thank you. Man, there's a lot of people that it takes to, uh, for the life of a church. I was thinking, all the people that work with our children, we are so grateful for you. We need more of you. I'll put a plug in for that. I also wanted to just think, when I pulled up Friday to church, it, was, it looked like a tornado had come through here. Um, I mean, there was, there was branches everywhere in this uh, parking lot. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to have to send this text to the trustees and the congregational chairperson and um, man by this morning you would not have even known except for the big branches that are up there I just want to thank um, I just want to thank our the people who came out I know Rich was out here Lauren was out here John Hosteller was out here Harold was out here did I miss anyone else was Ron were you out here too there was thank thank you all like that is a lot of work to get this place cleaned up um, and it just—it's just a reminder. It takes a lot of gifts and skills for a church community, and we need yours. Like you don't have to be a worship leader or preach. We need people who can come out with chainsaws and cut down, uh, cut out branches like uh, like they did. So I just want to thank you all very much for that. We're in a series, ser- sermon series on the Psalms. We're moving through the Psalter, and it can feel like in an individual Psalm and in just the Psalter as a whole that we're on a roller coaster. Last week, if you were with us, we were in Psalm 8. We were in the clouds. We were in the wonder and the magnificence of God's creation. The awe of the one who created it all, who, who flung moon and stars from his fingers, who crowned little old us with glory and honor. And today we have the question, how long, how long, how long, how long? See, the Old Testament in particular the Proverbs, but we see it in Psalm 1 too, which we also looked at. There's this logic for how life works. It goes something like this. You walk the path of the righteous, life's going to work out great. You take the path of the wicked, and it's not going to work out well. It's going to lead to destruction. That is exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. You, You reap what you sow. And I believe, I don't know about you all, but I believe that the experience of life shows this to be true. That, for example, sin is its own punishment. That that you and I are often our own worst enemy. That chickens do eventually come home to roost. And, and, I think the experience of life shows us the exact opposite, that the good and evil of the world happens to people irregardless of their righteousness. And in the Psalter, we get the whole spectrum of emotions, and today what we get is a psalm of lament. And, and psalms of lament, you'll see them all over the, the Psalter, they are, they are cries of help. They are, are songs for when the floor of life has dropped out on you. They express suffering and confusion, the feeling that one's been abandoned by God and that God has gone silent. Four times in this psalm, the psalmist asks this haunting question, How long, Lord? How long? You are going to forget me forever? He's got this impression that God has forgotten about him. We're not told what happens, but he feels unseen by God. Remember last week we talked about this innate desire to be seen by God. Well, the psalmist doesn't feel like God. He's invisible to God. How long are you going to hide your face from me? To ask God how long he's going to hide his face is another way of saying, how long are you going to hold back your favor from me? We may not say that. We made something a little more crass. Like, how long do these crappy things keep happening in my life? It seems like, and I've talked to you. I'm thinking of one person. uh, It just seems like one thing after the other. I cannot win. I get done with one thing, and I go to the next. How long must I wrestle with these thoughts in my head, day after day, and the sorrow in my heart? Anyone else have wrestling matches in their head with their thoughts, or am I the only one? <laughs> Late at night, you can't sleep, there's a wrestling match happening in your head, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, thank you. And the, the, the thoughts, man, they are rough. You don't want to mess with them. They'll body slam you. The psalmist, man, he sounds anxious to me, right? He sounds depressed to me. <laughs> one more time. How long my enemy triumph over me. Not only are there these internal programs, there's something, we don't know what it is, there's some external problem. Uh, Not only is this bad happening, but it seems to be some of it come from an enemy, and the enemy is actually gloating in triumph over the misery. It's like salt on a wound. Man, I'm a mess, and here comes my enemy just throwing salt, gloating, adding to my misery. There's more than just spiritual pain happening, there's there's mental pain, there's, there's spiritual pain, there's physical pain. The psalmist seems like he's on the, the verge of death. And, of course, all this pain is connected, right? We know this more than ever. You don't just feel the pain in your soul or feel the pain in your body. They're connected. You feel the pain in your soul, and it works its way out in your body, and you feel the pain in your body, and it works its way in your soul. My wife, who's is, is very observant, she can tell by the way I'm tilting my head if I'm feeling anxious, Maybe you have someone in your life who can just look at you and say, you are not in a good place. How long, Lord? is a question that emerges from a painful season in which the very foundations of one's life and faith have been shaken when the bottom has dropped out. It's like, uh, it's like as I heard a preacher say, imagine a bridge, right? And that bridge is solid or seemingly solid. Thousands of cars a day drive over that bridge, and then comes a fully loaded Mack truck semi, and it drives over that bridge, and it's fully loaded to the max, and that's 40 tons pressing down on that bridge. And every one of those joints, and those columns, and those foundations are stressed. And if there's any weakness in that bridge, that truck is going to expose it. That's where the psalmist is right now. He's at a breaking point. Unless God intervenes, he's done. I've said it at the beginning of this series, I'll say it again. We have in the Psalter the the full spectrum of human emotion on display, the darkest and the brightest of human words to and about God, awe and wonder like last week, anger, sorrow, doubt, confusion. Uh, The reformer John Calvin described the Psalms as the mirror of the soul. Think about how a mirror works. You hold up a mirror, it reflects what's in front of you. The mirror doesn't lie, it reflects reality We see ourselves how we actually are. We hold up the Psalter in front of us, and we can see our lives as they actually are. They're rife with pain and suffering. They reflect reality. There's 150 Psalms in the Psalter. Over a third of them are Psalms of lament. I mean, that just kind of blows me away. Imagine if I came here, every third sermon was just like, we're going to lament tonight today. You guys would be okay for like a month, and you'd be like, we've got we to do something about this. But, but here's what it indicates to me. Man, lament, it's not at the margins of life or faith. It's right in the center of it. For me, the, the, the first question, this is hard because I don't know about you, but when pain and suffering and questions hit me, my first question is, why? What did I do to deserve this? Second question is usually, how long? How long do I have to deal with this, Lord? Hang with me, because we're going to move to a brighter spot. But if we try to shortcut the lament and suffering, we will not get to the hope and trust. Not the right way. It'll be a false, superficial way. The path to faith and trust and hope, they don't go around lament. They go right through the heart of it. And we... As a, as a culture, I think the church culture maybe in particular struggle with this idea. This hit me a couple years ago. Um, you know, I get to, It's one of the the, the blessings of, of being a pastor is all the times I get to interact with people in painful seasons of life. And I was talking to a woman who had recently lost her husband of, of many, many years and understandably was in a place and a season of lament and mourning. And And, and About a week after that, I think, she was talking with a friend of hers who had good intentions, not bad intentions, but suggested that she get on antidepressants. And and my problem is not with antidepressants at all. My problem is that is the perfect example of a culture that has no tolerance and no space for lament. As soon as lament and sorrow comes in front of a person, they say, we can't handle that. Nope. You're not in an okay place. And the problems with this are numerous. Let me just name a couple. For one, we don't give that person space to grieve and lament. This should be a place, maybe the the wider place is not, this should be a place where people come in here and they lament and they mourn and they're not told that that's not okay. Because here's what happens, and we do it inadvertently. When we don't allow someone who's in a season of mourning and lament to do that, we heap suffering on suffering. What do I mean? suffering tends to isolate us. Well, if we lose a person like this woman, we've lost our companion, so we're already feeling some isolation. But not just that, physical suffering tends to isolate us. We can't get out of our house as much. Um, Emotional suffering makes us feel cut off from the world that seems like it's just fine. We feel isolated, and then we come into a space like a church, and someone says, that's not okay, and then we're just all the more isolated, and what I think that shows us is that we, as a, as a church, have a theology of glory. We love to talk about glory. Not so much a theology of the cross. Because maybe I'm wrong here, but many of us have this idea, we harbor this thought that somewhere out there, probably in Florida, is a beach where suffering and lament don't exist. Like For me, that is an example of suffering and lament. But I have my own places. It's in the mountains. It's far away from the crowds and the 100-degree temperatures in the Gulf. But you guys got your place. And I'm not, I'm not dissing the beach. I'm just saying you got a place where on the horizon is a place where the suffering and lament doesn't exist. And the Bible comes up to you, and it comes up to me, and it says that mountain doesn't exist. That beach doesn't exist. It doesn't exist now. It doesn't exist in 30 years when you're retired or whatever. Stop looking for it. You're not going to find it. If you were to somehow find that beach in Florida where suffering and lament and despair doesn't exist, here's the problem you would have. You would have had to cut yourself off from everybody else who's suffering. You don't want to be near them. That's a problem. Jesus always is moving towards suffering. He's not moving away from it. He suffers and he moves towards those who suffer. But there's a second problem I think that might be more of a convincing case. I think if you cut yourself off from suffering, you cut yourself off from joy. And I'm, I'm young, and I, and I just want to acknowledge the reality is you guys in your age have experienced more suffering than I am. That's just part of life. You've lost loved ones. You've lost spouses. So, but the older I get, I'm, I'm understanding that if you cut yourself off from suffering, you will inadvertently cut yourself off from joy. I was with uh, Father John Deere, a Catholic peace activist, a um, little, little less than a year ago. Has has been arrested like 50 times or, or interacted with people all over the world. But one of the lines he said to me stuck out. He said, I met, uh, he met Desmond Tutu, right? The guy who in South Africa would have been exposed to the horrors of apartheid. And he said, uh, Desmond was one of the most joyful, if I'm remembering right, correctly, joyful people I've ever met. And he wept every day. I remember hearing something similar about the founder of International Justice Mission, which works with uh, sex trafficking around the world, has been around for a long time. Um, The founder is is every day you're you're exposed to the the darkest parts of life. And that person in the interview said he was one of the most joyful people he'd ever met. Mother Teresa, who worked uh, at the poorest of poor, apparently had a wicked sense of humor, which I love to think about. Joy and suffering. Here's my point. Joy and suffering. It's not like there's joy here and suffering here. And as we move away from suffering, then we get to joy. And as we move away from joy, then we get to suffering. Somehow, and in our maturity, we hold these together. We say life is joyful and life consists of suffering. The Bible knows this. I think those of you who are older know this. The psalmist knows this. And he, in his prayer, is completely honest about the pain and suffering he's experiencing. He doesn't say, you know, I'm really feeling bad, but but man that guy has it worse. <laughs> like there's no there's that's not in the psalm I and mean, I understand I hear that a lot and I understand it comes from a place of a, a good place of saying I need to realize that it could be worse. I don't want you to go there because the psalmist doesn't want you to go there. The psalmist wants you to acknowledge the pain and suffering you have right now. He doesn't want you to look outside. What is your pain and suffering? Okay? Be honest about it. You don't have to deflect it. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't try to suppress it. Because here's the deal, if, if we try to suppress the lament and suffering we feel, it's gonna come out some other way. It's like whack-a-mole. Do you guys, I don't know if that game exists anymore, but like, when I would go to the arcade, whack-a-mole, any, anybody, no. thank you. Elizabeth's gone, so my 90s references are really gonna to struggle today, <laughs> thank you. Whack-a-mole, it pops up and you bam, but then it's always gonna pop up again, right? I think something similar happens like that lament, that suffering, it's, it's going to bubble up in us and we're going to try to suppress it. It's just going to come out somewhere else. We're going to ignore it. You, uh, you can ignore it. You can try to numb it with entertainment or drugs or whatever. You can isolate yourself. You can take it out on people. You're going to do something with it. You could go to God with it. That's, what my, that's the case I'm trying to make you That Go to God with this. That's what the psalmist does. He takes his pain and his suffering to god this is interesting he doesn't like work out a theology of suffering in in the classroom and then go to god and say all right i've worked this out now i can be with you no this is like he's working it out in in real time i think i'm just being totally honest god and i'm just going to process this right in front of you and this seems counterintuitive why does this seem counterintuitive because remember, the psalmist is feeling the absence of God, the silence of God, the, the, the removal of the favor of God. You know, the psalm, I'm forgotten by God, God is hidden, I feel the silence of God, therefore I'm going to go to God. Right? That's not typically where we go. And that's where the psalmists go. And I think that's so key to, this, to understanding the psalm and the psalms of lament. Right? We, 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 even in the darkness, in the hiddenness, the place to go when it's not easy is not away from God, but to God, okay? And once you get there, I want to encourage you to put it into words. There's something about taking that inward turmoil, that pain and that suffering, and articulating. And you can do this in many ways. You can, uh, you can do it silently in your head. You can, uh, you can do it by yourself, where if people heard what you're saying, they, they might think you're unhinged. You can do that. We have writers in our congregation. You can write out poetry. Remember, this is poetry, right? He's writing out poetry. You can journal it. Get it out of you and in words. Don't just let it sit there inside you. Don't suppress it. Get it out. Suffering's going to come. Lament's going to come. Feelings of abandonment of God are going to come. Seasons of challenge are going to come to to you and us as a community. Uh, uh, But what we do is not move away from God, but move Towards God, and we don't just go to God; we go to God boldly. Look at the first uh, verse three in the Psalm. Look at what the, the Psalmist says. Look on me and answer. He's moving from complaint. He's talked about all the things that are wrong, and now he's asking God to do something. He, he, he's saying, "Lord, you got God, you got to do something about this. I'm in a desperate situation. Not only am I grief-stricken, I have enemies around me." Death is knocking at my door. If you don't act, I am toast. Look at me and answer me. What what happens when we hear it? Look at me. Answer me. Can you speak to God that way? I think the psalmist is. There's a very famous scene uh, in the television show The West Wing uh, in which Jed Bartlett, he's the president of the United States, in the show, he's a devout Catholic. And he's attending a funeral at the National Cathedral for his personal secretary, who has been killed in a car accident. And the scene, you can, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, his, one of his staff is saying to him, "You know that, that was a beautiful service, kind of the thing you hear at a, at a funeral. And Jed is just looking down. If you've ever been to the National Cathedral, it's a stunning cathedral. He's looking down the aisle. Uh, he, he's right down the center. He's not looking at his aid. And he tells him, have the agents seal up the church. Seal it up the cathedral. I need a minute. And he begins to do a remarkable scene of airing out his anger and his frustrations and his pain and the injustice of the world at God. And uh, and I watched it this week and I recoiled because you, you get this sensation of, I don't think you can say that. You're watching somebody... He would shut all, everyone out and say, I'm going to actually say what's on my mind. And the reaction I had watching was, I don't think you can say that. I heard Martin Sheen, I heard an interview about this scene. Uh, who, he, Martin Sheen plays Jed. He's actually, he's a Catholic too, devout Catholic. And he's talking about filming this scene. And, and the higher-ups in the cathedral do not like this. At the end, he actually stomps on a cigarette in the middle of it. And I can understand why they weren't too happy about that. They don't like this scene. And at that moment, Martin Sheen's looking up at the uh, stained glass and he sees Job. And he says, that's what I'm doing here. That's what he's doing. He's having it out with God like Job did. Can you, say, can you say that to God? The psalmist feels like you can say it to God. Do you? Do you feel like you can lock the doors of a sanctuary? Not literally. You can, you can do that here, though. You're welcome. Do you feel like you can lock the doors of a sanctuary and have it out with God? If you're saying, no, just read the Psalter. Because the psalmists are doing it again and again and again and again. And, and I have to preach this sermon because I need to hear this too. Because I, hold, I get to a point where I hold back too. But like so many psalms, the psalmist here gives us permission. More than permission, the psalmist gives us a path to move from suffering Hope to do, something to do with our pain and our puzzlement. God can handle it. You know, I think about sometimes your people you love are very honest with you, like your children. Anybody else experienced that? Your, your children—they can tell you whatever's on their mind. And you know, I'm—I I can be an insecure as a parent because I don't know how I'm doing as a parent. Like there's—you get like one shot at this, not that long, and you're doing your best, all right? But I'm—I'm. I'm, can be fairly insecure about my parenting. God's not an insecure parent. You're not railing against God, and God's like, man, I, yeah, come to think about it, I have kind of failed in that way. <laughs> I probably should have handled that differently. That's a human father, human mother. That's not a, a heavenly parent. He can handle it. He's not insecure. And, and what's interesting in here, in... In this total despair, this look at me, you answer me, my Lord, there's this faint, there's this this sound of hope. It's faint. It's really faint, but you can hear it. you got to listen really closely. Look at me. Remember, God was hidden. God couldn't see him. He's got hope that God's going to see him again. This God that's turned his face is going to see the psalmist again. Answer me. This silent God is going to speak again personal. It's my God. The, the name, it, you lose this in English, but it's, if you'll see, it's LORD in all caps, which is a replacement for Yahweh, the personal name of God that was revealed on Mount Sinai to Moses. This isn't a cry out into the void. This is a cry out to a God who hears, who is personal, who is Yahweh, who wants to be known. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote of this psalm, hope itself despairs, and despair nevertheless begins to hope. What a Hope despairs, but despair begins to hope. Amidst the silence of God, the hiddenness of God, the inner turmoil, in this psalm, despair begins to hope. The psalmist is crying out for help from God, talking with God, right? He's moving in the right direction. He's acting God, asking God to act on his behalf. And at this very same moment that he's trying to persuade God to act, something is happening, he's persuading himself. Despair is beginning to hope. He's reminding himself that right, despite the outward signs, it doesn't look like God is there, but when I look back and I think back, God has been faithful to me in the past. I may not feel it right now. I may not be having butterflies in my stomach, but that God has been faithful to me, and I remember when he's been faithful to me, and I'm playing it in my head again. And it's not just any God. It's Yahweh. It's the personal God delivered his people from slavery. Amidst the darkness and confusion and despair, it's just a little sprout at this point, but hope's pushing through. It's like the, those first sprouts you see in spring when the daffodils are going to come out. They're going to bust out, and then they're going to go into full bloom. Verses 5 and 6. But I trust your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. The psalmist has laid out his complaints to God, before God. He has boldly asked God to act. And in the process, he's moved to this place of trust and praise. And this is the pattern you will see again and again and again in the Psalms of Lament. They start out with utter despair. By the end, they are in a place of hope and trust. What's going on here? It feels like a 180. It feels like theological whiplash. Did the psalmist in that prayer all of a sudden have this great vision of God or the voice of God coming from heaven? Did the, did, was he healed? Did the, did the enemies finally get their comeuppance? Not that we can tell. As far as we can tell, there's been no change in the psalmist's circumstances, at least the outward circumstances. And yet, something has changed. The psalmist has changed. The psalmist has moved from a place of despair to trust. Hope is despaired, and somehow despair has moved to a place of hope. How? Well, look at verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. Questions remain unanswered. Pain remains unrevealed. And yet the psalmist is in this now quiet place of trust because amidst the turmoil, he remembers the love of God. And this, love, this word love is not captured well in English. It's so rich in Hebrew. It's, it's hesed. It means loyalty, enduring allegiance. It's, it's covenantal love. It's not the love that we typically use in our culture. It's loyal love. It's the love in the story of Ruth. You all know that story, most of you. Ruth is a foreigner. She marries an Israelite man. He dies along with his brother and his father and Ruth is left with his widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people. I got nothing to give you, Ruth. Just go back home. Ruth won't go. That's hesed. In fact, that's what the Bible calls Ruth. That's loyal love. That's hesed. And that's the kind of love the psalmist is banking on, a loyal love, a covenantal love, a love that that has the power to, to stabilize us in turbulent times, uh, the kind of love that we talk about in our culture does not usually like that. Let me date myself to the 90s again. Ben Folds 5. Any Ben Folds 5 fans out there? All right, thank you, Melody. <laughs> Man, if I love Ben Folds 5, and if I, I think, I might be wrong, but if Ben Folds 5 would have been around when I was a kid, I might be as good as Joe at piano, maybe. Because I would have seen how cool it is to play piano. I just needed, no, I wouldn't have been as good as Joe, let's be honest. But maybe I would have kept out my lessons because I needed a guy to come and like Ben Folds play the piano and say, that is cool. Because piano lessons, no offense, when I was a kid, were not cool. And Ben Folds comes along and says, this is cool. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on Ben Folds. All right, got to see a concert of Ben Folds at Vanderbilt University uh, He's there, it's a pretty intimate space, and he plays one of my favorite songs, The Luckiest. And he he explains, I think he wrote this for his wife, and uh, my favorite verse in that, that I think captures love so well, goes like this. You see, he's struggling in the song, like, I'm having a hard time putting into words what love is, but I'm making a shot at it. Next door, there's an old man who lived in his 90s. One day passed away in his sleep. And his wife, she stayed for a couple of days and passed away. I'm sorry, I know that's a strange way to tell you we belong. I think it's just a beautiful line. It speaks of that that, that long covenantal love uh, that you many of you have experienced and I've seen in this congregation of living a long, faithful marriage to each other and then often dying together. I think about, this pops in my head, Ruth and Paul Bowman, right? They were not that long after. We see this, right? I think it's this beautiful... Um, Picture of covenantal love when we see that in a marriage. Uh, and I realized years later that, that Ben Folds, when he wrote that song, was like on his third marriage. And, and then later on I looked it up again. I think he's like been married five times. And, and I was like, oh, he's ruined the song for me. Because I was like, wait, dude, I'm looking for you to give me a picture of covenantal love. You're doing a good job, but I'm not seeing that quite in your life. And that's why we can admire the musical talent of Ben Folds, uh, or maybe Taylor Swift today we probably shouldn't look to Ben Folds and Taylor Swift songs to instruct us in love. They're good at feelings. They're amazing at feelings. Hesed love? Enduring love? Love that we have when the feelings are gone? Love that we keep in our relationship when the bottom drops out? No. This is the love of the Bible. This is the love of God. That's why in the eye of the storm, the psalmist is taking it from every direction, yet he finds himself surrounded by the love of God because he has reminded himself that God's love is unfailing. He clings to that rock. He's looked back at his life, and he's seen again and again and again, even when it didn't seem like God was steady, God was loyal. doesn't feel like it right now, but when I look back, God was steady, God was lovable loyal, and I can hold on to that. And sometimes you're just holding on to it with your fingertips. You're just barely holding on to the love of God. And the psalmist is telling you, hang on. Hang on. Look at, look at the path I took. Lament to rejoicing, despair to praise. And in doing so, he shows us a path. We'll see this path again and again in the psalter." It doesn't go around soul suffering It doesn't pretend like suffering doesn't exist. It doesn't, it's honest with our pain, and it takes us to a place of trust. And the place we, I, we see this, I think, so most beautifully is actually on the cross. I've talked about this before in this series. For me, the most haunting words in the Bible, I think, are Jesus cried dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're not hearing that as a haunting, you're not. You're not hearing it as as it was yelled out probably in wild words from Jesus from the cross. It's a wild, shocking line to come from the cross. You are not supposed to say that, especially when you're the son of God. But guess what? He's quoting a psalm. Of course he is. Jesus was immersed in the scripture. Psalm 22 begins with that line. And just like the other psalms of lament, it's going to take you on a path from utter despair to hope. Even Jesus, on the cross, felt the silence of God, felt the hiddenness of God, felt the removal of the Father's favor, felt the God-forsakenness of the cross. He is quite literally surrounded by enemies who are triumphing over him, who are mocking him. He is at death's door. There's nothing that looks like it's going to stop it. What some people have speculated, I said this before, is that he was working his way through Psalm 22. And you get the sense that he's drawing on that resource to move his place from utter despair to a place of trust. Because those aren't, those aren't his last words on the cross. We don't know exactly the order, but if you look at Luke, Luke tells us the last words before he breathed his last were these. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't even call it the Father. Doesn't even use the the language of Father. Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. Do you feel the movement to trust? The circumstances haven't changed. Jesus is about to die. But he's moved from abandonment to trust. The hesed love of the Father is there which he has felt for eternity. At the cross, Jesus enters into our suffering, he participates in our suffering, and he invites us then to enter into that path of suffering with him. But he does more than that. He gives us an example, but he does more than that. He gives us the best picture we have in the Bible of hesed love, of covenantal love, of unfailing love. Questions remain in our lives about God. We have the cross to look and say I don't understand what's going on in my life but I look at the cross and that God loves me I don't feel it but I look at the cross and I see the covenantal love of that God I feel it in my body but I look at the cross and I've got hope I've got trust it doesn't mean the confusion goes away it doesn't mean the suffering goes away but, but, but we've entered in we, we've latched on to the hessed love of God and our hearts can begin to rejoice again like the psalmist, even amidst the storm. As the old hymn puts it so well, no storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing?